Well, it is, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. And we come to a passage on a Palm Sunday that continues to press against our natural sensibilities and the social imaginaries and the norms that we live with. Kids, parents, uh, if you have read the Chronicles of Narnia in the silver chair, you come to a point in the story where the witch seeks to put an enchantment on Scrub and Jill and Puddleglum and the prince. Uh, They are in the deep caverns of the underworld. Kids, imagine that's like being in a Minecraft cave with no candles. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you're old. Um, so they're, they're in this underworld. And the witch produces a sweet, swell, uh, smelling aroma. And she softly pr- plays her instrument to warp the minds of her guest. And as she plays, she softly whispers. There is no such thing as an overworld. There is no such thing as a sun in the sky. The earth, your world, it doesn't exist. Aslan, lions, they aren't real either. And slowly the minds of her victims dull and they believe what the witch tells them. C.S. Lewis paints a picture that is very relevant to our day. Whether we like to admit it or not, we've been duped. The sweet aroma of this world has enchanted what we believe and how we operate in it. What we come to find out in a close reading of the Sermon on the Mount is that this is more true of us than we realize. We've created Christian categories that don't exist. We justify our unchristlike ways. And we don't follow Jesus' teaching as closely as we might have first thought. And in God's kindness, as we've seen through our study of Matthew thus far, Jesus was born of a kingly lineage brought out of Egypt to obey where Israel and we have failed. He was baptized by John to fulfill righteousness on our behalf. He was faithful in temptation where we haven't been. And as the better Moses now in the Sermon on the Mount, he has ascended onto a mountain to proclaim God's laws and God's ways for us to follow. Yes, Jesus would one day triumphantly enter the city of Jerusalem on a Palm Sunday, recognized as king. But that king didn't simply ride into town on a donkey. He had laid out a kingdom way and a kingdom policy for us to follow. In this greatest sermon, we've been told to wake up from the enchantment. Happiness is found in being poor of spirit, he says. Our lives are to be leveraged as a light for his glory and not our own. Our righteousness must exceed our human standards. We need a savior. Anger, it's equal with murder. Lust, it's the same as adultery. 
Our marriages and our words are to be pure. We are to love the unlovable, our circumstances and our enemies. So he's called us to wake up. And today we're going to consider the call for dependence in Matthew 6. And our main idea this morning will simply be this. Faithful followers of Christ seek God's approval and not man's. The reality is that you and I, we have believed the sweet smell mm, of the American 21st century thinking that has become the norm since the industrial age. (laughs) I'm not dependent. I'm independent. I'm strong. I'll fix it. I have to have answers. I need others to see what I've accomplished. I can manufacture and produce the results that I want in this life. I will always have a return on my investment that is tangible and seen. Hard work will get me there. Now, there's a lot of good in these thoughts, but there are some half-truths mixed in as well, is there not? Have we allowed time and space, the time and space we live in, to affect how we read Jesus' words in this Sermon on the Mount? Well, I believe we have. So we're going to break our passage this morning into two sections. First, we have, in this call to dependence, faithful sacrifice. We'll see this in verses 1 through 4. And verses 16 through 18. So please read with me in your copy of the scriptures. And I think we'll have it on the screen as well. Our Lord Jesus says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secrets, will reward you. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, this is God's word, and and I'd like to point out a, a negative and a positive that we read in this section and in these verses. During Jesus' day, giving, fasting, praying, these were the essential three forms of piety. If you wanted the world around you to think that you were super pious and religious, you would do these things. Perhaps our equivalent today 
is having a Jesus fish on your bumper, listening to the Christian radio and attending a Bible study. Whatever your respected forms of piety are, there have always been things that we deem as spiritual. And we try to put on a good face and display our religiosity to those around us. But make no mistake about it. Faithful sacrifice in giving and fasting is spiritual and God-honoring. Unless, of course, it's done for the wrong reasons. Negatively, we see in verse 2 and verse 16 that Jesus is condemning giving to the needy and fasting while blowing trumpets and disfiguring our faces so those around us can see just how great we are. Is this simply a conversation about public and private worship? Ripping verses out of context is common, can be common, for anyone who wants to make a point. And there have been times people have used these verses to say that our faithful sacrifice in giving and in fasting should always be done in private. But I would argue that's a little bit of a lazy reading of the passage. There is an ample number of times in the scripture, even in the actions of Jesus, that faithful sacrifice is public, seen, and yet still God-honoring. So if it's not a public-private kind of discussion, what's the point? What is he talking about? I think Jesus makes it very clear in both verses 2 and 16 with this repeating phrase. Look again. That they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You see, the issue squares itself on a lack of dependence and seeking the favor of man. It's always been our sinful human tendencies that makes everything about us, even our spiritual worship. In in Jesus' day, the concept of your relationship with God and your religious beliefs being an individual and a private ordeal, well, that was very odd back then. Unlike our context today, where we often are tempted to think that religion is a private affair, It was common to see prayers and giving and fasting and other public acts in the home and in the marketplace, in the streets and at work. All of life was a spiritual act. The dark side of this kind of public expression of faith is what Jesus is warning of of us this morning. The tendency to twist something that is supposed to be God-honoring And it becomes an opportunity to honor and to elevate self. This is especially easy as it relates to faithful sacrifice. Sacrifice requires that we give something of ourselves. There's always some kind of pain involved in sacrifice too, isn't there? It hurts financially to give to the needy. It hurts physically when we commit ourselves to fasting, to focus our hearts and our minds on God rather than ourselves. We don't want the pain of sacrifice to go to waste. We want a reward for what we are enduring. So it's like me pointing out to my wife 
how many loads of laundry I've done. And subtly displaying all the dishes that I've accomplished. That's a big deal right now. Our dishwasher's broken. (laughs) I've sacrificed. I've pained myself while I listen to a podcast. And I want reward out of it. But don't worry. In both examples, Jesus says that you've gained your reward. Look again at verse 2 and 16. What is the reward of these hypocrites? Favor from God? A deeper dependence and relationship with him? No. The reward is the temporary approval and favor of man. A favor that has been won by being a fake. You got your reward. You tricked the people around you. Good job. Mission accomplished. See, in our own lives, we've come to find out that that actually isn't very satisfying at all, is it? Our, sake, our, our faithful sacrifice done for the sake of the reward of the people around us and the applause. And we get it. People think we're pious and religious as they see the Jesus fish on the back of your vehicle or the Bible study or whatever you think it is. But the reward, it's, it's not really satisfying. We can put on a good face. We can be thought of as pious and spiritual. And we'll have the reward of convincing the people around us. But we still wrestle inwardly. Questioning, desiring, and seeking the favor that truly brings joy. A life that God smiles upon. Which I think quickly leads to the positive of these verses. So in verse 3, Jesus says, when you give, not if you give, when you do it, when God prompts your heart to give sacrificially, there'll still be a public aspect to it. You still had to leave your home. You still had to navigate the streets. And you still had to arrive at the doorstep of where generous giving would take place. And this, all of this, this giving to the needy, it's an act of dependence, by the way. And that is what Jesus calls us to. Giving generously, sacrificially, we are trusting that God will meet the needs of those we're giving to and that he'll actually meet our needs. We have needs too, don't we? So God calls us to give and trust and do it in a way where we have little awareness and attention to it. Now, I think it's quite impossible to drop some money in a bucket or write a check with our right hand while our left hand and our brain has no idea what's going on. It's not that Jesus in these verses is calling us to blindly pull out cash and just throw it into the bucket and not know. So what is he asking? The idea is to express dependence and seek God's favor by thinking little of yourself. And ultimately, that is what our faithful sacrifice is to be marked of. A lack of awareness of self and a focus on God. So in verses 4 and 18, when you give, when you fast, when your motivation, attention, glory, and honor goes to the Lord, when you don't make your spiritual acts about yourself, when even your public acts of worship are driven 
by a private motivation that others don't know about. When you humbly leverage your sacrifice so that no one is aware but the Lord, that is what pleases him. He's after your heart. That is what God rewards. So my friends, brothers and sisters, do not worry if someone sees what you're doing in your faithful sacrifice. You're you're living before the face of God, before the audience of one. He sees and he rewards. And isn't that part of our fear and faithful sacrifice? We think no one will see. We think maybe God won't see, so we want others to see. So I got some great news for you. Parents, God sees you as you faithfully sacrifice for your kids. Kids don't see it. They don't know what's going on. God sees you, mom and dad. Kids, oh good, you looked. Kids, God sees you. He sees you faithfully sacrifice in serving your siblings and honoring your parents at home or diligently doing your schoolwork when you don't feel like it. God sees your sacrifice. Tomorrow's Monday. So tomorrow when you go to work, my friends, God sees your faithful integrity and sacrifice in the office. He sees you. When you give generously at Lakewood to see the gospel go to our community and to the ends of the earth, God sees your faithful and secret devotion to him. Our sacrifice is for him. But we have to admit, even as faithful followers, we have imperfect motivations, don't we? We are motivated by a love for God, and yet we still feel the pull for the temporary rewards of man's favor, for respect and recognition. I do the dishes because I want to honor the Lord and sacrifice for my wife. But I have other motivations. Maybe a kiss. So we're pulled. Our motivations aren't always perfect. So may the Lord enlarge our hearts to seek his favor and his reward more than anything else. May we be more driven by his smile rather than the applause of man. Oh, God help us. But secondly, in our passage, bracketed between faithful sacrifice, we come to faithful praying. In verses 5 through 15, would you read them with me, please? Our Savior Jesus says this. And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, 
For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, prayer, I believe, has always been a litmus test for our true spirituality. If you want to know the depth of your relationship with God, look no further than your prayer life. Who you are on your knees, who you are when you're confessing dependence, praising God, asking him to move and work in this world, who you are in prayer is who you are. And we can sacrifice and serve and teach and we can do all these things to put on a show as we can with prayer in front of others. But in the quietness of our hearts, who we are when we pray and open our lips in Jesus' name, coming to a heavenly father, no one sees, no one knows, we're talking to him. That's, that's who we are. And actually look again at verses five through eight. That's exactly what the hypocrites of Jesus' day were doing. They would stand out in public, make their voices heard in the synagogue, and use many words, probably very lofty and spiritual sounding. They did all this, as we saw in sacrifice, to reap the reward of the favor of man. Again, it's not a private versus a, a public kind of conversation at large. There are many faithful examples of God honoring prayer in public places, in the scriptures and in life we've seen. The question is, to whom am I praying? Who do I hope will hear this prayer? Am I praying to God or am I praying to make a point to someone else that's near me? Am I praying or am I preaching a little sermon? Am I talking to God or am I speaking to impress or convict or educate someone else? I find it really interesting that we have uh, in in the parallel gospel, in Luke's gospel, in Luke 11, the Lord's prayer as well. And in Luke 11, the disciples ask Jesus, Teach us to pray. I've always found that an interesting question or request. Because up to that point, they had seen Jesus heal the sick. They've seen Jesus proclaim authoritative words and teaching. I bet he could preach. They had seen Jesus cast out demons. And do they ask Jesus to teach them to do any of those things? No, they don't. So it's part speculation, I'll admit, 
on my part. But I wonder if they asked Jesus to teach him to pray. Because when they saw Jesus pray, they saw something that they had never seen before. Faithful prayer that modeled intimacy with the Heavenly Father. Faithful prayer that modeled true dependence on God. Prayer that sought the favor of one. The favor of God rather than the favor of others. There was no pretense in his prayers, no lofty words, no show. Simple, humble, desperate, dependent, intimate prayer. Lord, teach us to pray this way, they said. We've seen a lot of amazing things, but we've seen nothing like this. Teach us to pray. So we read the instruction of Jesus who says, when you pray, don't seek man's favor. Don't put on a show. Pray this way. And there's been a a lot of debate in different faith traditions as whether or not we should actually pray these words or this is just simply a model and an example of how we should form our individual and unique prayers. And the answer is, of course, yes, both. There's a lot that could be said, but just allow me an opportunity to point out a few items of the Lord's Prayer that I think will aid us as we seek to be faithful, as we pray to God and not for the sake of others. And I say this often, but there is a healthy, healthy desperation to the Christian life. A dependent posture in prayer that is Godward focused. So it's no wonder that Jesus would start his prayer by identifying whom he was praying to in verse 9. Look again. Our Father in heaven. This room's big enough. If you're here and you're considering Christianity, you're in a good spot. Thanks for being here. If you're considering Christianity, the concept of a heavenly father might strike you as odd. It did me for quite some time. Even if you've been a follower of Christ for some time, it can still be a difficult concept to cherish. So when you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, when you cling to the truth of his person and his work, Jesus himself says that something of a second birth takes place. God supernaturally, quite radically, I would say, changes your heart, your desires, and your eternal destiny. Believing in the good news, the gospel of Jesus, it carries with it promises. And one of them is that you become a child of God. So men, women, children, if you would turn from yourself and turn to Jesus... If you would believe truly, you would be adopted into the family of God. You will have a heavenly father. You will become a faithful follower. You will be truly different and everything will be changed. So Jesus tells us in verse 9 that faithful prayer is one of dependence that looks and speaks and honors a heavenly Father who is above. 
not some cold creator and dictator. We speak to God as a child speaks to their father, eagerly anticipating a listening ear and a warm embrace. Yes, his name is holy and hallowed, revered and respected, but we approach him as a father. My friends, will you ask the Spirit of God, if you've trusted in Christ, to teach you to speak to him in this way? A heavenly father. And if you are here and you do not know Christ or follow him faithfully, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Consider that God would have you here today to consider this kind of changed relationship. A dependent relationship that looks to God of the universe as a warm, kind, listening father. Our father in heaven. But key in on verse 10 closely as well. What is to be the posture of our hearts and even the words of our lips as we pray faithfully? Your kingdom come. An elevating of God's wills, decree, his program and plans and not our own. The prayer, if you would be dangerous enough to pray, your kingdom come, you are praying that you would die to your own kingdom in your own self. This prayer is an asking, a pleading, that the kingdom realities would be shaped in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. Yes, your kingdom come. It has a future aspect to it, sure. But it's most certainly a prayer for here and now. My Father, the hallowed, holy, and revered one of heaven, bring heaven to earth now and change me and don't just change me be with me verse 11 provide give us as I traverse this dangerous journey of the Christian life as a wearied pilgrim and a sojourner in a land that is not my ultimate home God show your presence tangibly, powerfully, graciously. Jesus calls us to dependence. So my friends, no matter how stocked the fridge is, no matter how fat that bank account balance reads, no matter how hard you work, you are dependent. Give us God. You are dependent upon the grace of God to provide for your daily needs. You are dependent upon the grace of God, verse 12 and 13, to have forgiveness for your failures. You are dependent upon the grace of God to soften your heart, to truly and lovingly forgive others, even those who don't deserve it. You are dependent upon the grace of God to protect you, enable you, and direct you as you tiptoe in the minefields of temptation in this world, in your own heart. You are dependent upon the grace of God to deliver you from the evil one who would tear you down, and you are dependent that God would deliver you from the evil that still resides in your heart as you wrestle with sin. I am persuaded 
that faithful followers of Christ are convinced that they are desperate and dependent. We have been duped. We work, we eat, we navigate relationships, jobs, evil, and this walk of faith far too self-sufficiently. Jesus calls us to dependence. He calls us not to look to our own schemes, power, eloquence, or ability. We have been enchanted by the spells of a witch in the land of Narnia that sweetly whispers that we can get through every moment, every day, and every year apart from the grace of a heavenly father. And it's a lie. A lack of prayer is not simply a deficiency. It's a great turning from the kingdom life that God has called us to. Brothers and sisters, I confess to you a deep need and a deep desire to follow this call in my own life. Would you join me in tossing aside our independence? Would you join me in cultivating a true posture of humility and desperation? Jesus says, happy and blessed are the poor in spirits, and I am poor in dependence. Poor in faith, poor in prayer, I am. So, Lord, help us. Bring us to joy in a truly kingdom-dependent life. God, teach us to pray. Which segues well into the last two verses in this section that we need to chew on. Look again at verses 14 and 15. I'll read them again. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This almost reads as a commentary to the model prayer that Jesus just laid out before us. And perhaps he knew out of all the categories of this prayer, we would struggle the most with forgiveness. And he clearly tells his followers that if we do not forgive, he will not forgive us. We can't make it say something else than rather what it says, if that makes sense. It says what it says. So let me make a very clear and perhaps shocking statement, and then I'll quickly qualify it. If you do not forgive others, you likely are not a true Christian or a faithful follower of Christ. As we've said since the beginning of this sermon series, if you do not understand the Beatitudes, you will not understand the rest, especially these two verses. So think for a moment. Who is this prayer written for? Jesus is laying out a call of dependence to those who would follow his kingdom laws and his kingdom ways. Okay, okay. Who follows his kingdom laws and his kingdom ways? Those who've had the Beatitudes deeply shaped in them by the gospel of Christ. The true believer is poor in spirit. 
mourning over their sin, meek, hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that is not found in themselves. The true follower has been so shaped by the gospel that they produce the beatitudes of being marked by mercy and purity and peace and steadfastness. So look again at these two verses in light of the Beatitudes. Who is it that is able to forgive the vilest of sinners? Even if it takes a long time to do so. Because forgiveness is hard. Who does that? Those who've had the fruit of the Beatitudes in their heart. Who is it that withholds forgiveness from others? Those who have not become kingdom followers and have had a heart changed by the gospel. The whole Sermon on the Mount has brought to light several difficult categories for us. But perhaps, perhaps this is the most stark The kingdom call of Jesus is to be dependent in our faithful sacrifice, in our faithful prayer, even prayers of forgiveness to other people. It cannot be produced. You cannot manufacture this in your own strength. You cannot force your heart, your child's heart, anyone else's heart to follow this standard. The Sermon on the Mount And even calls to forgiveness, authentic prayer, giving and serving. It is not a call to morality. It is not a call to do better. It's a call to cling to the king. It's a call to cling to the one who gives us these words. He who requires it of you will produce it in you. It's a call to be changed by true faith and belief. It's a call to seek to be right with God and leave all the posturing and the impressing of others to the side. Faithful followers of Christ, we seek God's approval and not man's. The Sermon on the Mount in this passage is the smelling salt to wake us up from the dull minds that have been enchanted by our own sin and the influence of the world. These are difficult teachings. Because my faithful sacrifice and prayers are often lacking. And I need a mighty Savior. The Sermon on the Mount is a call for you and I to cling to the righteous one. So may God do a great work in us and through us this week. Tomorrow's Monday, so we can be all spiritual on Sunday. But Monday, the rubber hits the road and you have work and relationships and situations in which you will be required to faithfully sacrifice and pray. And you say, God, I can't. And he says, I know. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has done it for you and he will shape it in you. That's him calling right now. (laughs) Isn't that clever how I can just...
I actually planted that phone call in here. <laughs> Wake up. The smelling salts have duped us. God has called us to a kingdom way. I'll ask those that are serving communion to come forward at this time. This passage actually very clearly informs our communion time. Communion, my friends, is a visible, physical, tangible reminder of Christ's work on your behalf. It's a reminder that when I come on a Sunday and I look at the performance of my Christian life, I see that my performance is lacking. That my good standing with God is not dependent on how good I did this week, how right my sacrifice was, and how forgiving my prayers were. But my good standing is settled because 2,000 years ago, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that I might know the forgiveness of sin, a changed heart, and a new life. And on a communion Sunday, we're not just reminded of his death. But we're reminded that we need him. We're reminded of a kingdom, kingdom standard that we've been called to that we are just trying to figure out. We're reminded that when it comes to dependence, I'm far too self-sufficient. Communion is the reminder that you are more desperate and dependent than you ever realized. So if you have trusted in Christ, if you are clinging to him in faith, take this as a physical, tangible reminder. He is for you and he will shape you and guide you and change you. He will produce this kind of dependence in you. Will you pray with me that God would do that? Father, do this. Do this. Show us. Change us. We remember the death and the resurrection of Christ. We proclaim it. And we remember that Christ died to save us from this present evil age that we live in. An evil age that is full of hearts like ours that are far from you at times. So Lord, show us that you're near, show us that you're powerful, and show us that you care. In Jesus' name, amen.